city of the Upper South, intimately connected to northeastern cities, the southern slave trade, and the Virginia countryside, Richmond embodied many of the contradictions of mid-19th century America. Greg Kimball depicts the Richmond community as a series of dynamic overlapping networks, showing how various groups of residents, immigrants and natives, free people and slaves, high-born and low, understood themselves and their society within this web of experience. Drawing on a wealth of archival material and private letters, Dr. Kimball elicits perspectives on the nature of antebellum society and the coming of the Civil War. Greg Kimball is Director of Education and Outreach at the Library of Virginia. He's the author of American City, Southern Place, a cultural history of antebellum Richmond, which is a go-to reference for anyone working in this period. Greg was a curator and historian at Richmond's Valentine Richmond History Center for almost 10 years. In addition to his academic pursuits, Greg performs widely on banjo, guitar, and fiddle, and has lectured and written extensively on Virginia's musical traditions. In fact, last December, some of you may have been here, when he gave a musical performance and lecture on the songs of labor in Virginia. So please join with me in giving a warm VHS welcome to Greg Kimball, who will speak to us about American City, Southern Place, Richmond on the Eve of War. Thank you so much for that introduction, Paul. Um, I will point out several times uh, uh, today of um, things that came from the collection here at the Virginia Historical Society. Of course, I did research in a lot of different collections here and, and in other states. But um, there's some particular quotes you'll hear that come from some really wonderful pieces here at the Historical Society. So, you know, it's, it's a very important place for me. And I also want to say for the National Battlefield Park here in Richmond, um, uh, I have a real soft spot in my heart because I worked on the restoration of the Treadier Ironworks many years ago, and the fact that they've continued the stewardship of, of that uh, I think is really an important thing. So thanks for that as well as for hosting today. So let me tell you just a little of the ideas <clears throat> that we'll be talking about in terms of thinking about Richmond in this period uh, right before the Civil War. These are my, kind of my major themes that I hope you'll get from my talk. Uh, first, that Richmond was a relatively cosmopolitan place with strong connections to the urban north. And despite that connection to the north, or in some cases perhaps because of it, some of the most politically and economically powerful members of Richmond's community cultivated a strongly pro-southern ideology. But Richmond was also deeply tied to its hinterland, the plantation Virginia. Uh, through many, many things. We'll talk about that as well. Coexisting with an industrial uh, structure that was actually fairly advanced was, of course, a southernness that included the institution of slavery. Virginia is still the largest slaveholding state in, in the Union at this time. Ironically, most Richmonders never imagined that conflict with the North was inevitable or really even on the horizon. We should not read history backwards. Remember, we have a little joke at the Library of Virginia. People in the antebellum period didn't know they were in the antebellum period. <laughs> <coughs> I will use that term. That's a term we use, historians, but 
We need to listen to the voices of all Richmonders, as um, Paul mentioned, of all classes, different races, to really get an idea of what this place looked like. I gave the University of Georgia Press two images that I thought would work really well for the cover of my book. They chose this one, which is, of course, this wonderful view by Edward Beyer, a uh, German uh, lithographer. And it's looking down from basically where Ethel Corporation is now on Gambles Hill, down on this beautiful scene. There's, it's, it seems very quaint and natural, but look, if you look carefully, you have these trappings of modernity. You have the canal in the foreground. You have a railroad bridge, the first one to span the James, the Richmond and Petersburg. You have the old manufacturer of arms, the long building on the left. And you have, over in this other area, let me use my pointer, the tr uh, this is one of the mills of the Tredegar Ironworks. A flour mill here, and again, more of the, this vast industrial iron-making enterprise. So this is kind of what people in the past have called the machine and the garden image. <laughs> we have this kind of interesting uh, dichotomy between this natural landscape and a pretty uh, advanced industrial city. This is the other image that I proposed. And it is by an English artist named Ira Crow. And it shows a group of slaves who've been sold. And they're actually getting on a railroad car to be transported further south after the sale. And Richmond, of course, was uh, one of the greatest domestic slave markets, uh, making incredible amounts of money for the traders. But yet again, we see in the background the capital, symbol of freedom, and we see a factory. So all of these tensions run through what Richmond was in this period. We have to go back just a little bit and think about why Richmond is even where it is. And most of you probably know it's because of the James River and the fact that it falls something like 100 feet over the course of about three miles. And that, of course, is the origin of industrialization here. First, uh, you would have mills like this one, which was uh, owned by David Ross, a Scotch uh, merchant. And the milling of grains is really critical to the development of Richmond overall. Um, early tobacco was very uh, valuable commodity, but it wasn't processed here. It was put off of plantations onto boats to go off to be processed somewhere else. To get a real industrial, um, a, a central place created, wheat milling was really the ticket because it was a very high volume. It required people making those, uh, coopers making the barrels and it, milling and ironworking. So it was kind of a multiplier in the economy and really, in my view, is much more important to the origins of Richmond than, in fact, tobacco. Here we see examples of, of what became uh, what this early, this industrialization by the time of the Civil War looked like. Some of these are actually post-war images, but show some of the key buildings. So here, uh, anybody know where this is? It's Manchester which is a completely different city across the, just directly across the James. So you walk across the Mayo Bridge, and there you encounter a very aptly named Manchester with its cotton mill and with flour mills as well and its own power canals for those facilities. Here we have the great Gallego Mill sitting on the canal basin. And here we see, again, a post-war image of that turning basin with several packet boats in it. Jeff Wallace, son of William Wallace, <laughs> I think you can tell where he's from, 
uh, uh, Scots immigrant, wondered at this economic and urban progress, he wrote to his brother in California, you would hardly know Richmond. I meet every day hundreds of new faces. The business of the city has also improved much. The town is extended around the suburbs, and the connection between the basin and the dock makes the old basin have a deserted look. Warwick and Barksdale are building another mill larger than either of the old ones on the site of the old basin spring. They have made a fortune this year. So where was this flower going? A lot of it was going to South America. And uh, so this was really an international trade, as well as going to California in the gold rush, along with Charlie Wallace, his brother. The Richmond Business Directory said, quote, the stranger should by no means omit paying a visit to the extensive flour mills of Richmond. And late in the 1840s and 50s, something happens with tobacco. It starts to be processed here on, in, in Richmond rather than being sent away to be processed. So over the course of basically from the revolution to uh, the 1850s, you have the evolution of quite large tobacco factories. By 1860, the census recorded 50 tobacco factories with at least 3,400 African-American workers. And Hunt's Merchant Magazine in 1858 put the number at 53 factories and mostly male slave workers amounting to about 4,000. Again, markets stretched from California and Australia in the antebellum period. Although the manufacturers and southern nationalists chafed under the control of the trade by northern factors, by 1850, New York City alone controlled almost half of all the tobacco manufactured in Virginia and North Carolina. So it's going first to New York, and then it is being resold. And this is largely a function of capital, and who has it? This is a map from Joseph Roberts' wonderful uh, book of, of many years. It, I mean, it's a fairly old work, but still an incredibly, uh, really uh, amazing work that shows tobacco production in Virginia, North Carolina. Um, now, there is one little problem with this map, I think. Can you tell? Yeah, it's New, New Virginia. Is that what somebody said? <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's a whole piece of Virginia that's not there. <laughs> and we kind of sometimes do forget that, that, <laughs> that, that, that there was this other uh, part of Virginia that uh, in 1859 was still around, in 1860 was still around, but which will split off from Virginia with the coming of secession. Going back to the Tredegar Ironworks, <clears throat> Again, uh, uh, really in its time of first-class ironworks in the United States, the Richmond Dispatch in 1853 had this to say about it. These works cover several acres and form almost a town in themselves. Nearly 700 men are constantly employed in the various branches, branches of manufacturing here carried on. We doubt whether at many points in the Union so busy a scene can be witnessed. The clang of hammers, the roar of hundreds of fires, and of all varieties of machinery, boring, turning, cutting, rolling, planing, and performing all the thousand processes which iron, the king of metals, must undergo to be fitted for human use. It was almost deafening, but it had a music all its own, to the ear of one who loves old Virginia and rejoices in every token of her onward and upward progress. So 
interestingly, people, many, certainly merchants and manufacturers embrace this explosion of uh, prowess, manufacturing prowess that the, that the city was enjoying. But one of the really interesting slates of hand that they did, they used it uh, in a way as uh, very much as a pro-Southern thing. So their idea was um, we should be rivals with the North. We should be the ones who are creating our own goods. This is going to be good for us in the long haul. Just for context, here is an image of a map that shows in the darker areas where the clusters of manufacturing establishments were in the state of Virginia. And of course, you can see that uh, Richmond uh, and its adjoining counties is very, very uh, heavy area of manufacturing. Um, you can also see some of these areas which are going to re represent um, the Valley Forges, iron industry out in the valley, as well as probably Lynchburg. This is a period map, not a created one. And it shows the distribution of slaves in this, in this uh, state based on the 1860 census. And again, you see this very heavy concentration in particularly uh, uh, the, the, the Piedmont area as tobacco has shifted somewhat from the original area of settlement in the Tidewater out. And even here, I find this interesting, even out here in Southwest Virginia, you've started to see the growth of slavery. And I'll talk a little bit that, about that in the context of transportation in a few minutes. Again, just a touch point, here's the total Virginia population and sort of where it was clustered, which again, uh, really gives us a good, good image of both the cities as well as the Piedmont area. <coughs> Masters holding eight slaves. It's really a remarkable number of things you can do with these census generators. Now, here's Richmond's population numbers. This is a chart that I included in my book. Um, and there's a couple trends here, I think, that uh, you can, that are fairly obvious. Look at that percent gain from 1850 to 1860, which is the bottom set of numbers here. Where's the growth happening in these, in, in these numbers? 135.9% growth between in 10 years of the foreign-born population. And in fact, 13% of Richmond's population and more than a fifth of its white inhabitants are foreign-born. And that's, a very, I think, a pretty significant number and in keeping with uh, immigration coming to America at this time. One of those what-if questions, would it continue to have grown if the Civil War hadn't happened? And would, be, would Richmond have become more of an immigrant city over the years, possibly? In fact, though, as far as I can tell, this is the highest percentage number ever in the city's history. Now, that may change with the next census. But this is the, the apogee of uh, foreign-born population in the city. Where did they come from? They came from Germany and Ireland primarily, and the British Isles. The British workers in particular were significant because of their labor at the Tredegar Ironworks, because of their high level of skill in things like ironworking. Whoops, I'm gonna go back for just a second, I'm sorry. 
One other point I want to make is that a lot of Richmonders weren't really happy about immigration, as some Virginians aren't today. William Ludwell Shepard, who worked for a merchant's house, later he go on to become a famous illustrator and artist and sculptor. Uh, but working for a merchant, he had to go down to the docks quite frequently, where he complained of the odoriferous guano. That's what's coming back from South America. He recollected in his diary meeting a schooner's mate, an uncouth down easter, a sort of long tom coffin, who told me that he was a Tom Paine man, that is a believer in the skepticism of that miserable atheist. <laughs> so he doesn't like New Englanders very much, and he doesn't like immigrants much either. He goes to St. Peter's Church, and he just basically calls the service barbaric and, and horrible. Uh, and of course, this is a period with a very high level of anti-Catholicism going on, something that we really don't, you know, those of us who maybe remember the election of John, John F. Kennedy might, do recall uh, this as a factor in American life, but it was really virulent in this period. <clears throat> this is a part of the population um, in the time of the language of the period of uh, the uh, folks would be called free Negroes or, or free people of color that was kind of going in the opposite direction of the um, immigrant population. Their numbers were barely sustaining themselves. Um, you can see, <coughs> excuse me, in this slide some of the professions that free blacks applied in the city. This is actually a special section of the 1852 city directory that lists about 440 free people of color and, what, and where they lived and what their jobs were. Uh, in a city directory, I think it's pretty obvious why you would have something like this in there, right? Because if you wanted to find somebody to do your washing or perhaps to fix a blacksmith to fix something, you would go to the city directory. Here is the um, state numbers for uh, free colored persons as it's described in the census. And although we see clearly Richmond and its, and its surrounding counties, Petersburg and its surrounding counties, a Norfolk area, Accomack County, very interesting that it has such a high percentage. <clears throat> now the free black population in Richmond from 1850 to 60 only grows about 8%. The total growth of the population in Richmond is about 35%. So there, it's clear that free blacks are leaving, and I found this to be true going through the First African Baptist Church minutes. Constantly, they're having to write letters back to the church so they can receive a letter saying they're in good standing, required for them to join their churches in places like Philadelphia and New Bedford and other places where they've migrated. One migrant <coughs> from Richmond, Lucy Scott, who had been born in York County, but had um, moved first to New Kent and then to Richmond, wrote a set of letters that are incredible letters, very rare, at the, U at the University of North Carolina's uh, Southern Hist Historical Collection. And in one, she says to her, as she says, my dear children, I am in good hopes that this may find you all well and make up your minds to leave old Virginia, my mother's home. My heart mourns with sorrow to think that I had to seek a home in a strange land among strangers for the sake of my children. It was hard for me to part with some of my good friends in Virginia. And so it will be with you all, but for the sake of your children, you all must part from your good friends also and come to a land where your children can be men and women. And in later letters 
the key thing for Lucy Scott and her decision was education. Um, something that was very restricted for African Americans in a place like Richmond, but in uh, Ohio and then later Canada where she lived was available. So that was her prime motivation to leave the state. Um, we also should point out some of the, uh, what was the status of free people of color uh, in this period? Well, they did not have a lot of the civil rights that, uh, that whites had, could not serve on a jury, could not testify against a white person, um, they could not vote, but the one thing they could do is own property, and some, including barbers, who are almost essentially an elite among free, free Negroes, um, did build up very large amounts of property. Uh, there is a, a barber named uh, Joseph, uh, John Ferguson, who owned, I think, almost 20 pieces of property that he bequeathed in his will to various relatives. <clears throat> and many of them plied their trades in these, uh, in the major hotels like the Ballard and Exchange. Here's the foreign-born map of Richmond. <clears throat> and you can see this is even more focused. You know, Richmond, Norfolk, and what is that blip up at the top? <laughs> Anybody know what city that would be? Wheeling, it's Wheeling, uh, which might as well be Pittsburgh. <laughs> it's pretty, you know, that's, that's the nature of the city. And again, think about Virginia not as one place, but a series of over, overlapping regions. You know, that Ohio Valley area is completely different culturally than the Tidewater or Richmond. I mean, that, that's something we know it today is, is still the case and very important in this period to understand. Uh, mentioning uh, immigrants, any guess as to what ethnicity these, this gentleman and his son are? That's right, they're Scottish, of course, because of his, you see his dress, it's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful image from the Valentine's collection. His name is Matthew Delaney. He was a master machinist, highly, highly skilled worker. And these were men that were incredibly power, uh, um, proud of their skill. One of the things that made them really separated them from the rest was all of their knowledge was up here. They're like that guy that fixes your computer in your office, he, you know, in some mysterious way, but they won't tell you how they do it. <clears throat> and these guys are, are like that. And, there's, and because of that, they have the absolute right everywhere in the world to choose their helpers because they will, of course, be their sons or friend's sons and carry on this, this, this uh, highly skilled work one, one particular one you'll see sometimes in the Richmond City Directory, someone listed as a puddler. <laughs> uh, a puddler is a man basically that works iron in a puddling furnace. And the key here is that to make the iron hot and melt it, but not to let the carbon that's in the fuel migrate into the metal so it becomes wrought iron. And doing it in large batches was the work of a puddler. Very, very, they, they talk about the metal coming to nature was completely a craft that was embedded in people's knowledge and training over uh, their whole lives, wasn't written down anywhere. So there's quite a bit of leverage there. So much leverage that <clears throat> in 1847, the Tredegar uh, workers in the rolling mills go on strike against Joseph Reed Anderson, the owner of the, of the mill. And they go on strike because Anderson has proposed to them that they train enslaved African-Americans in their jobs. 
I think you could probably have a pretty good idea on several levels why they would find that to be a totally unacceptable thing. Again, one, they have this right everywhere else to name who their apprentices are. And second, because as most people in America thought, uh, uh, these people were simply not uh, this, even on the same level socially as they were. Anderson writes a public letter basically firing them all. By the way, we think a lot of these men were from Wales. The name Tredegar is, in fact, from Wales. And there is a Tredegar Ironworks in Wales where many of the first workers came from. This is a wonderful piece that uh, Frank Williams, who was the last owner of Tredegar Ironworks, owned, and who I met and talked to quite a bit uh, about uh, the works. You see it says, presented to Charles Campbell um, from the artisans of the Tredegar Foundry, Richmond, Virginia, 1851. Again, I think it gives you this sense of um, here is a, a, a Scotsman, Charles Campbell is leaving the works to go work for somebody else. He's given this wonderful um, piece. There are a number of accounts in the newspaper of these of grand banquets that Anderson would put on for his workers where such presentations would be made. So I think he learned something from the 1847 <laughs> strike. <laughs> you know, they had to work with these folks. And the other wrinkle to that was, remember, the 1851 Constitution had given non-property-holding white men the right to vote. So all of a sudden, Anderson, who is a politician as well as an ironmaster, realizes there's, you know, what the quote says, maybe seven to 900 people are probably working at Tredegar. That's a pretty big voting block. Railroads are really important to our story. And again, Virginia is not by any means behind the times. By 1860, there's 1,771 miles of track in Virginia belonging to 19 different railroads. It's the greatest amount of mileage in any southern state, and it's six nationally. So let's focus in a little on Virginia from this map of the Baltimore and Ohio. That heavy band, uh, uh, line you see at the top, let me see if I can indicate this, is the Baltimore and Ohio lines. And this is where Wheeling comes in. You know, again, its world is Cincinnati, you know, running through this uh, Ohio Valley area. But Virginia is pretty well developed. By the way, this is a view of Wheeling. And here is a, a little cleaner, a little easier to, to, to understand map of what the railroad networks in the uh, United States look like at this time. I included this uh, Virginia and Tennessee uh, map at the bottom because I mentioned earlier that slavery had be just begun to expand into the counties in, along the Piedmont and Blue Ridge uh, down into southwest Virginia. Ken Noe in his book about the Virginia and Tennessee argues essentially that the building of the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad was what spurred that because finally those areas of the state are connected up with the central markets. And so tobacco production starts to, in the, in the 1850s, explodes there. Uh, slavery expands. And he argues this is a key element why Southwest Virginia went with Richmond rather than with Wheeling when push came to shove. Here we have Man Valentine I and II. Of course, Man Valentine II uh, 
founds the Valentine Museum with his brother Edward. He, we sometimes think of Southerners as being kind of in isolation, you know, that they, they, they had these ideologies and thoughts about what Northerners were like, and vice versa, in isolation. But in fact, many of uh, the city's elite merchants and elites in general spent a lot of time in the North. A dry goods merchant would have to go up at least twice a year to buy goods. They were very familiar with what places like New York look like. In fact, here is, here is a uh, description of Man Valentine writing to his wife about what he found in New York. He could not, quote, understand such crowds of human prattlers and jabblers can move so noiselessly and speechlessly along these everlasting streets and not turn to say, how do you do, or pass one word of any sort. Valentine really felt like this, they had lost any, all sense of community uh, you know, values or social values. He said, I've seen a thousand busy ants internally moving to and fro businesslike as human beings, yet they stop to exchange a passing word, to know the way, or make the usual inquiry of their friends. I've seen horses along our streets nose each other and make acquaintance, but New York people are beasts of burthen. Without courtesy, animals destitute of all the beautiful instincts of Eden. <laughs> now that's an indictment. <clears throat> Valentine then went on to uh, attack uh, the uh, steward of Stewart's Palace, the great dry goods palace uh, on Broadway. He told his wife that, quote, he would not exchange with my daily labors and sweet nightly return to wife and child for Stewart's marble palace with Stuart's anxious look, crisped hair, and his marble mind and heart, building yet another, other marble palaces on which to enthrone a name and in which to increase his poor ambition. But when Man Valentine's wife, I'm sorry, sister, Elizabeth Ann Valentine, wanted to have her wedding trousseau, where did she buy it? At Stuart's palace. And it's a cornucopia of the world of goods, 69 entries, including Muslim dresses, bonnets, jewelry, caps and gowns, satin slippers. So at, at the same moment Van Valentine is denouncing this world of goods, he's in, he's in, Virginians are ensnared in it because this is their primary trading partner in terms of goods of this type. Another thing that I found very fascinating in my work was how um, African Americans used these transportation <laughs> networks in somewhat um, uh, novel ways. We have, of course, the famous story of Henry Box Brown, who, uh, through the intervention of several friends, is put in a box and shipped to Philadelphia, to the, the abolitionist's office in Philadelphia. And his trip, obviously, is noteworthy on, its, on the face just because of his bravery to do that and his, his determination. But it also tells us something about how um, difficult it was actually to travel around on these, these networks because he gets on and off of various kinds of transportation at least four times. He's put on his head. He has to take a steamboat across the Potomac River because there's no railroad that connects up. Um, so it gives you this sense of that the transportation lines that we saw earlier, which looked nice and t tidy, weren't that tidy. If you came to the RF&P terminal in Richmond by near where I work on Broad Street about 8th 
and you got off and you want to go to Petersburg, you had to walk all the way down the hill to about where the Federal Reserve is to pick up the Richmond and Petersburg Railroad. One other thing, I think that boats is also a way that many African Americans, because of the port, would stow away on boats. And that was actually probably much more common here than the classic overland idea of people escaping slavery that we're familiar with. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the social side of, of life. There were many, 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 many fraternal orders and um, uh, orders, to uh, self-help groups. We see here, uh, actually a very interesting one, the Union Burial Ground Society, which was a, uh, a free people of color got together and started this burial society to provide death benefits for their members. And you see Gilbert Hunt's name, the very first one on there, who's a very, of course, famous African-American who lived in, in this period in Richmond. And this was a period of joining, people joining things. And historians have wondered, you know, why was it that the Odd Fellows and the, the Masons and some we would never even heard of, like the Druids. Um, why did they emerge at this time? And one of the answers that I think makes some sense is that here are these people, often from rural backgrounds, white and black, coming to the city where they don't know people, there's an anonymity to it, and they want to belong. They want to belong to something bigger than themselves. And I think that really did fuel the growth of these kinds of societies. Um, now, the city had other lures that were not so noble. And um, unfortunately, some of those were things like gambling and uh, uh, drinking. Again, we have Jefferson Wallace, who's writing his brother, Charlie. He talks about their old friend, Jack Nolans, a regular goer to the Faro banks for some three years and plays pretty high. While Jack had quit his wagering at cards at his friend's urging, he informed Wallace that, quote, everyone goes, even some of our merchants, and nearly every young man in the city, they think no more of being seen in a faro bank than a bar room. Faro was a card game that was popular at the time. Wallace also reports on all these old friends that he and Charlie had who have fallen into the bottle. He says, you recollect Armstrong that used to be clerk for the in-laws. He is the worst-looking object of humanity I most ever saw. What a sad thing it is when we see men who once were highly respectable, now not fit companions for the worst of free Negroes. And another, he talks of one of his old friends, Billy Allen, who, quote, got whipped twice while in liquor on the street. First, he insulted a dentist and received a caning. And then he offended Roger Pryor, the editor of The Inquirer, who, quote, pitched into Billy and pounded him severely. Walls concluded that, quote, our city has gotten quite pugnacious. <laughs> so there's this kind of disorder that you do see in many 19th century cities. This is no different than Baltimore or New York or other places. The newspapers start reporting prostitution openly and the arrest of women for that. And of course, there were some isms that were completely beyond the pale. There's a wedding party that, which is, I love these, there's wonderful diaries here at the Historical Society of these uh, big parties of, of uh, um, uh, brides and grooms and their large parties that would go all the way up through all the eastern seaboard cities and then up to the, uh, Niagara Falls. Well, one uh, group of ladies decided on a lark to go to a women's, right women's rights convention in 1860 in New York. And Samuela Hart Curd wrote in her diary, quote, 
The hall was well filled. I was shocked to see Negro men and women take seats in the white congregation, but nothing is too disgusting for them. The proceedings were contemptible. And of course, the one ism that they really feared was abolitionism, which they associated with uh, the North, but also with this whole kind of panoply of reforms. Now, one thing that one has difficulty um, pinpointing what to call is colonization, which many people did see as a reform. The recolonizing of African Americans to Liberia uh, was something that even people like Lincoln uh, thought might be a way to solve the issue of race in America. There were uh, a Virginia society, a, a, an American colonization society, and even the state of, of, of Virginia got into the act and proposed and did give some money to the transportation, particularly of free blacks, who were seen really as bad examples to the slave population. Gilbert Hunt, again, we see him, the famous blacksmith who saved people's lives in the 1811 theater fire, um, decides to go. In about 1829, he buys his own freedom. And he takes off for Liberia, and he hates it. It's horrible. It's like Jamestown. There's disease. People are dying. They're warring with the native people that they find there. Um, they're not welcome, welcome, welcoming them with open arms. And... Um, he comes back and he starts badmouthing colonization to everybody he sees. And people in the colonization society start writing letters back and forth saying, we gotta get this guy to shut up or nobody will ever go again. <laughs> and again, just a fun thing from the census that you can do, you can look at where the concentration of Baptists were across the state. Certainly one of the biggest uh, denominations in Virginia at this time. And a very important one when we talk about people like Gilbert Hunt of course, because it was the primary church for African Americans. This is the old First Baptist Church, which was uh, the uh, African American congregation purchased from um, the, the white congregation, who then moved up the street and built a new building. But the old building was, had about 3,000 members. This is a huge church. And what's interesting is it was also used for performances, because it was the biggest hall in the entire city. The Whigs had their convention there. The Democrats had their conventions there. Um, Tom Thumb was exhibited there. So it became essentially a meeting hall as well as being the center of this, uh, really, of African-American life in the city. Now, despite all this seeming modernity, Frederica Bramer, a Swedish reformer, spoke about going into this building. And he, here's what she said. Yesterday, the 4th of July, the great day of America, was celebrated as usual by speech-making and processions and drinking of toasts and publicly reading of the Declaration of Independence. It was read in the African church of the city. But why they selected the Negro church of all others for the reading of the Declaration of Freedom, which is so diametrically opposed to the institution of slavery, I cannot comprehend when the burlesque of the whole thing must be so evident to everyone. And one thing that I really learned doing this book was that, and you, we see it all every day in our lives, people have an enormous capacity to ignore the facts and things that are very closely around them. We do really do create our own reality. And this leads, leads us really to one of the grimmest aspects of the city in this period, and that is the slave trade, which... Uh, I know Charles Dew's been working on some statistics from specific traders 
it looks like some, uh, even just one of the mo bigger traders was making over a million dollars a year in this business. I, I really believe that this trade was probably outstripped anything industrially that Richmond was doing in terms of capital generation. Here we see a group of slaves who have been readied for sale. And many of the accounts talk about the fact that they are, of course, very well dressed, but also that often their bodies are closely examined. Uh, which for some people is very shocking, others not so. Um, a Jewish immigrant, Philip Whitlock, uh, had such an experience, and he, he says after he left, uh, quote, um, never had any desire to go there again. Although it was novel to me, still my feeling of humanity was such that I did not approve of that traffic. Although there were a good many people who were looked upon as respectable and in good standing that were engaged in that business. And in fact, despite some of the narratives people put out after the Civil War, there were two Richmond City Councilmen who were major slave traders. Another of the uh, Ira Crow scenes from the city when he was touring with Thackeray. I love this guy. <laughs> um, you know, again, I'll just give you a little flavor of some people who were living here. Here's a uh, I talk about this agricultural connection to the to the hinterland of of Virginia, which is very strong, and you can just imagine this fellow's been down at the agricultural fair, which starts in the 1850s down on where it's now Monroe Park, and he's just proud as punch that he's probably won an award for his his uh, his produce there. So, yeah, uh, Richmond was definitely a magnet. Uh, many of its industries were tied to those rural, to rural, the landscape in terms of wheat production, et cetera, um, um, uh, truck farming, uh, people migrating into the city to you know, look for a new start from the countryside. Um, another important part of African American life is a large number of African American women who are living in the city that are enslaved are domestics in the households of middle class and elite families. So wonderful pair of images from the Valentine's collection. Both of them were uh, enslaved in the Valentine family, Henry Page on the right and Sally Gladman, who was the nurse of Edward Valentine, the sculptor, on the left. I'm gonna wrap up now with a little bit about the politics. And I did a lot of this in my book through the discussion of um, the militia companies that were very common in, in, in the city at that time. Um, let me set the scene for you. 1851, George Wythe Munford, who's the Secretary of the Commonwealth, stands on Capitol S Square and he's proudly surveying a new silk flag that's just been accepted on behalf of his old company, the Richmond Light Infantry Blues. Here is what he says. We are Virginians. We owe allegiance to Virginia. Here are her coat of arms and, and her motto, Virginia, Sic Semper Tyrannis. Whence her mother leads, we will follow. We have no fear that she will lead where her sons may not follow. She is virtuous and prudent and wise. And when she plants her standard and unfurls her flag, ours will be planted by its side. And we shall be there to give it to the breeze and keep it afloat. But we are more than Virginians. We are citizens of the United States, citizens of this model republic. There are her stars and stripes. There is her eagle with outstretched wing extending over the ocean and the land, and underneath it, the revered motto, the Union, the Union. So, 
I think what Munford's doing here, and I don't mean this in a disingenuous way, but he's, he is, he, we all have split identities. <laughs> all of us have multiple identities. It may be that we are proud of our Irish heritage, or it may be you know, all kinds of other factors, and we, we will have the, you know, those all overlap and are all part of us. And here what I see Munford saying is, our first allegiance, and it was in this time period, is really your state allegiance, and particularly Virginia, which had been so central to the formation of American um, uh, political system, et cetera. And at the same time, he then makes that very clever move to, but we are, you know, we're Americans too. And that was the tension. And there were lots of tensions in these, in these, among these militias. Although, um, one interesting thing is that when they did exchanges with other military companies from other cities, they almost all were northern, <laughs> from Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington. Um, just before Harper's Ferry, the Blues go up to New York to, to uh, hang out with another militia company who had come down um, to, uh, I'm sorry, oh. They had, I don't know if I have a picture, I'm sorry I don't. They'd come down with Monroe's, uh, when Monroe was reinterred in Hollywood Cemetery in 1858. They brought his body back from New York. So this New York company comes down, they have this incredible feast uh, in, the, in the Gallego Mills, in this big flour mill. They just clear out the floor and set up this enormous banquet. And um, so it's just really interesting that you have these militiamen, many of them were just prototypical um, working class and middle class uh, urban Americans who very much related to each other. Now, Henry Wise was at that, who was the governor, was at that event. Let me just give you a to finish up here, give you a little of what he said. He asked the soldiers and assembled guests to go before you leave here, my friends from New York, and look at the iron factories that are growing up around this noble scenery. Look at the iron factory here, the tobacco factory there, that factory which is every day stealing my life away with the very weed of luxury. And then a little quotation in the newspaper, the governor chews tobacco freely. <laughs> but it is worth some five or six million now. And if you ask me where Virginia is today, I will tell you where you are in the Warwick and Barksdale's millhouse that grinds out about 500,000 barrels of flour per year, and then applause. But in his tribute, he in a way makes a little cut at the old aristocracy, saying, I say that labor is not the mudsill of society, and I thank God that the old colonial aristocracy of Virginia, which despised mechanical and manual labor, is nearly run out. I thank God that we are beginning to see miners, mechanics, and manufacturers who will help to raise what is left of that aristocracy up to the middle grade of respectability. <laughs> That's pretty har harsh stuff from Governor Wise. But he saw the writing on the wall because after the 1851 Constitution, as I said, uh, now you have this not large new electorate of working class men. And they do drive to some extent how, but, and again, I don't mean that that was one part of his calculation, but he also, again, was a Southern nationalist who wanted Virginia and Richmond to achieve enough so they could basically break the stranglehold of Northern goods. And one final event that happened too that was very important was, of course, the rededication, uh, I'm sorry, the, um, the erecting of the uh, 
the Washington Monument in Capitol Square in the same period. So you've got militiamen you know, drinking from the Blues Bowl and enjoying themselves with northern militiamen. Then all of a sudden, Harper's Ferry happens. And these same militiamen are sent down to make sure that Old Brown is not rescued by northern abolitionists. And we start to see things really fray. I'm going to stop there so you get to ask some questions. Yes, questions? Right back here. Where, where really two questions. One is where did all of the uh, slaves who worked at Tradiger and wherever uh, live when they were not working? And two, would you please comment on the Jewish community? Okay. Uh, first question, where did these uh, particularly hired slaves live? They were given money to live out in the community, largely, although Tredegar's policy was the opposite of that. They did house slaves on site. We, have a pr we think we pretty much know where those quarters were. Um, but the, and that was, a, that was a, a huge sore point in the development of uh, industrial slavery. The city fathers did not like it one bit and passed some ordinances. Um, and of course, there were restrictions about how late at night uh, uh, slaves could be out. There were restrictions on how many of them could gather together in, a, in an assembly. Uh, First African Baptist Church had a white minister, Robert Ryland, who was also the president of Richmond College, because black churches after about 1829-30 couldn't have black, you know, they, they could not have black ministers. So, you know, it was, it created a, a, a issue that uh, was very politically charged. On the Jewish community, well, again, uh, and I'm, I'm glad you say that because I, I really should have included them they, because they are one of the earliest communities in the city. And um, you have, of course, Beth Shalom uh, Synagogue that is uh, founded very, very early in the late, I believe at least in the late uh, 18th century. So they're really in on Richmond's beginnings. And I think that's reflect well. And then there, of course, is another wave of Ashkenazi Jews who come mostly from Germany and Eastern Europe, uh, who aren't. And the early group had been Sephardic. Uh, they found Beth Ahaba, and there is some sense if you read um, uh, 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 Berman's book Shabbat and Shako, that there was some tension between those groups. But because they had so well assimilated um, over the course um, and. This isn't, you know, they could join some of the better clubs. They were, seemed to be pretty well received. They served in the Confederacy. They, in many ways, became Southerners. Other questions? Yes, sir, right here. Uh, he's going to give you a microphone so everybody can hear you. Mining was done near here. Some of the earliest mining was done in Chesterfield County. And uh, how, what, uh, how important was that in the general picture? I would say that coal mining, would, and you're right, that's a really important industry. And you have it on both sides of the river. You have it in Chesterfield County, and you also have it in, in, in Western Henrico and Goochland County. And it's really significant in the colonial period. 
Um, there are times when uh, Virginia is like the third biggest producer of coal of all the states in the United States. But it seems, based on a couple of new books that have come out, that by the 1820s it really started to fall behind Pennsylvania and other states in production. And um, so I, it's, it's important, but probably by the time, you know, right around the 1850s, not as important as some of the other industries. Um, but, but no doubt it is an important thing. It would have fueled all these early ironworks in terms of power, in terms of um, um, doing any kind of ironworking as a fuel. So it was important. Yes, sir. Be curious on your opinion, or if there were other discussions. I know originally Virginia decided they their first time they voted they did not want to break from the union. But was there is there any theory on what would have happened if they would have stayed with the North, considering they had so many slaves? And what what effect that might have? That is a tough one. <laughs> we actually have an. I'll give a little plug. <laughs> we have an exhibit up right now called Union or Secession. Virginia decides. And one of the things you point to is absolutely true, and I think it's one of the biggest messages we want to put out there. Virginia wasn't South Carolina. They didn't, like, just get together and, and what, about three or four weeks secede. They, it was agonized. There was just an agony that was going on to try to do this because, again, that political heritage that they had connecting them to America. But at the same time, one of the interesting arguments that the, pro, the unionists make is that slavery is safer in the Union than in the Confederacy. Because if we go into the Confederacy, there's going to be a war. And if there's a war, they had some foresight. Who knows what's going to happen to the institution of slavery? They, the Unionists, in, in, by and large, in Virginia, were making that argument very powerfully. You know, this is protected by the Constitution. You know, let's back off a little. Lincoln hasn't said that he's going to do anything about slavery where it exists. Um, so, um, ironically, you have a union position which is essentially pro-slavery. Um, whether that what-if question of what would have happened, very, very difficult to answer. Um, who knows what the Confederacy would have done if they hadn't gotten the Virginias, Virginians to secede. And by the way, as uh, um, um, Charles Dew has written a book about this, these southern states sent commissioners, they called them, to the states that hadn't seceded yet and they were very actively uh, getting, trying to get them to secede. So they weren't being passive about it at all. Other questions? Yes, sir, right down front. Thank you. Uh, yes, Dr. Kimball, um, I certainly enjoyed the lecture. Uh, in the 1850s, what was the reaction or kind of the state of mind of the, the press in Richmond? Uh, there was, well, I believe, what, four newspapers at that time, and uh, I understand that if you were a newspaper editor, you had to be able to fire a gun because they were the guys who were over at the dueling grounds more than anybody else. <laughs> I should have, that Roger P Pryor quote is kind of hints at that. Of course, he wouldn't duel someone who was beneath him, like a drunk on the, he just knocked the hell out of him, you know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they were a pugnacious group, and of course, they were still partisan newspapers. You know, you still had the Whig, you still had the Inquirer, but you had a new, a new kind of edition, and this actually was the best newspaper for the cultural history I was trying to do, was the Daily Dispatch, because it was a penny press, and it was reporting on every militia function, 
the stuff about prostitution appeared there would never have appeared in some of these other papers. They were very much more focused on the, it was a little bit kind of the beginning of yellow journalism, I guess you'd say, a little bit more sensationalistic. Um, so if for what I was doing, it was the most useful because it really told you what was going on in the streets of the city. Virginia still has a state militia, all of the professors at VMI. That's right. But are, is there any other sanctioned militia in Virginia today other than at the Virginia Military, Military Institute? No, not that I know of, but I, I wouldn't say to be an authority on that. I actually have a colleague who's a historian, and I, I, I see him at conferences, and I visit him at VMI, and he had this, you know, his uniform on, and... I had kind of a no idea. That's when I first became aware that there is an official Virginia militia. I don't know what, whether there are any other areas of the, you know, any other activities that they do other than at VMI and something. I just don't know. I mean, obviously, our current National Guard kind of evolved from the old militia system. I should just say something else, too, just as to understand the militia. Originally, you know, in the, in the 18th century, Every kind of able-bodied man of a certain age in a community would have been part of the militia. But one of the problems became you couldn't get people to come out to the drills. You know, f farmer's not going to give you two days of, of work. To, you know, it just fell apart, basically. It was in a terrible condition. And so what happened is you had these volunteer companies that emerged that were really kind of self-created. They'd be led by a local, you know, usually somebody, an important person in the, in the community. So uh, there's a real change even in this period in terms of how, what the militia look like. There's a, I couldn't read all my great quotes, but there's a, there was this young, again, my fellow from, this is a guy from Brooklyn, Robert Granis, who comes to Richmond in, in, he's like 18 years old and he joins a militia. But he starts complaining in his diary how much he has to spend because he has to buy all of his own gear, including his sword, you know. Thank you great, thank you so much.